All right, so we are now beginning our journey in chapter 8 of the book of Romans. Right, we started Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and now after, if somebody knows the number of sermons so far, anybody? 30, Johnny? 30, so this is sermon 37 in the book of Romans, and we're, uh, we're not halfway through yet, right? Uh, Romans has how many chapters? 16, right? So we're barely going to be halfway done. So today we're going to look at chapter 8, verses 5 through 11, and the exposition is going to focus on verses 5 through 8, but we're going to read all the way through 11 so that we get a better context of what Paul is telling us. If you are able to stand, please do so for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 5. The inerrant and infallible word of God reads as follows. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness in giving us your word. We pray this morning that your Holy Spirit gives us understanding of what it means to live according to the Spirit and of the warning of living according to the things of the flesh that we may turn from that. Empower us then, Lord, that we may be able to please you by the power of your Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I've titled today's sermon, Living According to the Flesh versus Living According to the Spirit, Part 1. Because today we'll be focusing on verses 5 through 8, and then next week we'll focus on verses 9 through 11. As I was making the final preparations yesterday in this sermon, talking about the dispositions of our will, of our heart, what we really want, right? I openly admitted to my wife a couple of things. First, my wife and I are trying to keep a, a healthier diet, right? And trying to eat better. Uh, it's as you get older, some of you may know it's tougher to stay healthy and to lose weight, right? So my wife and I are right there in that fight. And one of the things that I told her, you know what? Forget this. I'm going to go and get me some chili cheese fries and a bacon avocado cheeseburger from the hat or maybe go to Five Guys. And I was like, I'm going to do it. That's it. I'm going to do it. And she, was, she reasoned with me and she convinced me not to. 
She convinced me not to, and she actually suggested something that scratched the itch and is still within our bounds of, of what we are uh, committing to. Secondly, as I'm there preparing the sermon and I'm just tired, I am preparing for a work trip to South America. I'm actually going to leave uh, to South America later on tonight from LAX. And I'm telling you, you know what? This is too much. What I really want is I'm going to go to the studio. I have a music studio at home, and I'm going to um, put on some music, dim the lights, and just play the bass and pretend that I'm playing before a huge crowd. Like that will really get me calm down. And, and I said, you think that's going to satisfy me? My wife said, neither will that burger and neither will that rocking out will satisfy you. Now, there's nothing wrong with eating good food and pleasing ourselves in that sense. There's nothing wrong with listening to music and, and playing along. But this gives us an understanding of what we will, the dispositions that our hearts have, which naturally are not towards the things of God. Even for us as Christians, the dispositions of our heart are in a war to go against what should be most important. Let us keep that in mind. Leading to chapter 8, Paul has been expounding on the concept of sanctification, the daily battle of the believer. That when we set our minds to do something right, when we want to do what pleases God, things get in the way. As we are attempted to become more and more like Christ, we find ourselves in this constant war. Right? Let alone with the things from the outside distracting us, but with our own selves. Fighting the things that we really want to do, we do the opposite when it comes to things that would please God. And Paul culminates that section exclaiming, Oh, wretched men that I am. I would put it in, in my translation, like, what a scumbag I am, really. And Paul says, he cries out, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer to that brings hope to the Christian. It brings the reminder that we are not to remain in despair when we realize that we are wretched. That even being in the faith, it is difficult, it is hard to align our wills to do the things of God. To align our priorities so that God and the things of God are first. And Paul doesn't stay in despair. He says, like, who will deliver me? Oh, wretched man that I am. He says, thanks be to God. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he has delivered us. Thanks be to God. And then further assurance comes in the passage. As was preached last week by Brother James. In the first four, verse, first four verses of the chapter 8 of uh, Romans, in which Paul assures the believer that we are not to stay in a state of thinking that we are so wretched and knowing that we cannot do what pleases God all the time. Paul brings further assurance and says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the righteous requirement that the law puts on all of us 
which is perfection, that has been met in us through the work of Christ. Those that have a, a true pr profession of being a Christian, the righteous requirement of the law, which is perfection, has been fulfilled in us through the work of Christ. What the law could not do, remember we preached a few sermons on can the law deliver? Well, it'll deliver something. In a nutshell, it'll deliver a big slap to the face to tell you that you can't do it and that you're condemned. But as far as delivering salvation, as far as delivering you the will and the power for you to meet it, it will not deliver that. So God has done what the law could not do in the sending of his son via the incarnation, God becoming flesh. He was born under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. He was born of a woman. And Jesus did the opposite of what the law had done to everybody else that has ever lived. What the law has done to every single human being who has ever lived is crush them and show them that they are incapable of keeping the perfect law of God. However, when that law was faced against Jesus, Jesus is the only one who turned the tables and he condemned the law in the flesh. This is why the scripture says that when Jesus was in the grave, the grave could not contain him. It was impossible for the grave to hold him because legally speaking, there was nothing that could be claimed against Jesus. And the grave could not contain him. He had to necessarily rise again. So when Jesus comes in the flesh, God in flesh, God Almighty becoming a man, he condemns the law in his perfect flesh. So with that, today we come to realize that that very promise, that the righteousness requirement that God has for us to be at peace with him, has been met. The promise that we can become reconciled with God has been met. The question is, for who? Who is that promise for? Let us take a quick look at the second version, at the second portion of verse 4 that leads up to the passage today. It says, for who? For who is this? It says, for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay? Paul just mentioned how difficult it is to do the things that please God, in that he fails, right? That does not mean that Paul lives in the flesh. No, he's still living in the spirit because the realization that he is coming short, that itself is a spiritual truth that Paul understands. The person that is only carnally minded will not understand that truth. So Paul is giving us evidence that he is in the spirit. And that the promise of God of not being condemned, that the promise of God to be reconciled with him, the promise of God that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us is for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what is Paul Main's point in the passage we're going to look at is whoever sets their mind on the flesh, on the things of the flesh, cannot please God. If we go away with anything today, let it be this. If we set our minds in the things of the flesh, you cannot, you will not please God. We're going to see this in three main points. 
First, we're going to take a quick look at the characteristics of living according to the flesh. That's going to be our main emphasis. Secondly, we're going to look at the characteristics of living according to the spirit. That'll be a brief introduction, and then we're going to pick that up next week. And then we're going to look, thirdly, at the results of setting the mind on things of the flesh. What are the consequences of that, according to the passage we see today? So let us dig right in. First, living according to the flesh. What does that consist of? Well, first, an unregenerate mind will only scheme and strive for worldly things. Romans 8, 5, the first portion of that says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So to live according to, to set our minds in the things of, what does that mean? I opened up the introduction with my disposition of my heart to want certain things, right? Opposite of that, what I should be doing. When the scripture says here to set our minds on, to live according to, this, this refers to a natural predisposition, to the immaterial parts of our very mind, heart, soul. Proverbs 23, verse 7. Shout out to the brothers that like the LSB version. It says, For as he calculates in his soul, so he is. What I am in the very inner myself, what I think, my predispositions, that's how I'm going to act. Proverbs 4, 23, it says, Keep your heart without vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That reminds us, or should remind us, of what Jesus said, right? I don't have it in the notes, but Jesus said, It is not that which goes in that defiles a man, but that that comes out, because it comes from our very inner being. right? So there's, this, there's a command, a center of command, if you will, like I like to call it, in which we process our ideas, what we think that we need, what we think that we want, where we give weight to moral decisions. What am I going to do? What should I do? And that very inner being of ours is either focused primarily on the things of God and what I can do to please God if we are spiritually alive, or it is focused on the here and the now. What can I do to please myself right now? What can I do to survive? What can I do to maintain my day-to-day -day life without being concerned with the things of God. We will see that if we focus on the things of the Spirit of God, on how to please God, we will necessarily take care of both. Not only the day-to-day -day things, the physical things that we need, because in and of themselves, those things are not bad. We need those things. But we will also and primarily take care of the spiritual things. We will maintain that hierarchy. So when Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, which things, right? Are you going to worry about what you eat, what you wear? Right? All these things will be added to you. Now, as it is, that commandment from Jesus of seeking first his kingdom, right? To prioritize the things of God. As Christians, that's hard enough to follow. Let's just be upfront, right? It's hard to follow. As we become inundated, distracted with the things of the world, 
with our daily routines. But know this, if for the Christian that command is difficult to keep our priority in the things of God, things of the Spirit, set our minds in things of the Spirit, if it is difficult for us, for the non-Christian it is impossible. It's not happening. Dead on arrival. So then, to live according to the flesh and to set our minds on the things of the flesh is to have no regard for the things of God. Being indifferent or ignorant of spiritual truth. Now, let us be warned. That is not the only way in which someone can be setting their minds in the things of the flesh. If they are anti-Christian, what has nothing to do with God? Someone can be spiritual and yet be selfish and be an idolater. Somebody could claim that they are spiritual, religious, what have you, and still be fleshly minded. How so? Let us remember what Jesus said in chapter 4, verse 24 of John. He said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. All of us worship something or someone. All of us. And worship by its nature is spiritual. We all serve something, someone. If it's not Jesus, we're serving something or someone. Only Christians worship in spirit and in truth. That is, worship Jesus as King, as Savior, as Lord. We worship our triune God in spirit and in truth. All those false religions, they're certainly worshiping in spirit. All the naturalistic pagan religions, they are worshiping in spirit. But they're not worshiping in truth. So what does it look like then for those who set their minds on the flesh? How does it operate? Well, first, it consists of physical needs, okay? Which is not necessarily sinful in itself. What does the scripture say? 1 Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is Paul writing to Timothy and instructing that the things for our daily living are very important. They are so important that if a Christian does not provide for his loved ones, he has a false profession of faith. Those things are very important. James 2, verse 15 and 16, it says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So scripture makes it clear here and in other passages. The Bible acknowledges that there are things, as James said in that passage, that are needed for the body. And these things must be responsibly for, provided for and must be worked for. Especially for those of us that have a profession of faith, not to be lazy. And if there's a brother or sister that cannot do that for themselves, to help and provide for themselves. That said, we do not have a pass to say, I cannot provide for myself. And the reason for that is just that you're not willing to work and you're lazy. Scripture has something to say for that too, right? That's not what we mean. We mean we are to responsibly provide for and help in the physical needs 
of our household and especially of those that are of the faith. What other needs are there? Well, I thought I'd put a little snippet here, sort of a parenthesis, but this is important. Other needs that we have as human beings is meeting the conjugal, the marital needs of a husband and a wife. That is something good. That is God-ordained. And it is natural for that need to be met within a marriage. This is God-ordained. And that command has, been, has become corrupted, especially in our day, by sexual deviancy and the so-called gender revolution that we're seeing. It becomes corrupted. What God intended to be pure and good What God ordained, one man, one woman coming together spiritually and physically for a lifetime, has been corrupted. So the need to fulfill righteously and in the way that God has ordained that commandment within marriage, we are to meet it. And we have that need as humans. To this day, I don't think I've met the man or the woman, for that matter, that has the gift of singleness. They're out there. I don't think I know anybody. So that's important. It must be in place. All that being said, following only the drive to fulfill our desires of the flesh is sinful. If that's all we are aiming for. If our primary concern is only for the fulfillment of the tangible, of the here and now, and we have no regard for the spiritual realm, what will happen? Just look at Romans 8. Six, the first portion of that. Following the flesh is going to bring us death, physical and spiritual, if that's all we focus on. That verse says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. Right? Not only will it lead to death, but it is death. Let us think of an example of an otherwise exemplary father who is a non-Christian. But nevertheless, provides for his family, loves his wife, his kids, participates in the PTA meetings and is a good leader and is coaching the kids, pays his taxes. He's probably doing better than most. Good, good civilian, right? Yet, if the priorities of such men, who is by all measures of the world a role model, if that man does not know Christ, he is still in a state of condemnation before God Almighty. And the focus that he has in doing good, which right, he is in the eyes of the world, still falls short of the eternal holy standard of God. Okay? He has no peace with God. And the biggest debt he has, which is his sin, has not been dealt for, has not been dealt with yet. So then, the road to spiritual death can be passive, such as in the case of a good person, a good civilian, by the standards of the world. Because they do not know God. And the road to spiritual death can also be more deliberate. In contrast to the person who is a good citizen, it could be somebody who is openly and militantly against God. Openly, unashamedly, following the desires of their flesh and meeting those to the max, specifically in the vices of, of the time, right, of, 
of the flesh. It could be passive or it could be more deliberate. Paul warns about such attitude in 1 Corinthians 15.32 when he says, Why do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That verse is from 1 Corinthians 15, in which Paul is talking about the resurrection, about the gospel, the importance of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. And the important thing to note here for our context is that as much importance as Paul is giving to the resurrection of the dead, and how if that's not true, then we are to be pitied, right? And we're basically fools. Paul acknowledges that such truth is only possible because of a greater truth, because of a spiritual truth that Jesus has come in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died a death in our place, and didn't stay in the, in the tomb. He resurrected. And that is the spiritual truth that makes, that follows for the spiritual, then the physical resurrection true. Both have to go hand in hand. Not only the physical, but more importantly, the spiritual. Let us be on alert then, not to set the dispositions of our hearts for the physical things only, but for the spiritual as well. So here are some examples of what it is to live according to the Spirit. That's point number two. A regenerate mind will focus on spiritually good things. Romans 8, 5, the second portion of that says, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So those of us who have been born again of the Spirit of God, we have a recurring reminder. The Spirit in us reminds us that Christ abides in us through His Spirit. That we are accountable to God. And therefore, we cannot remain in sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. That we are not alone. And that of the most important things in life that we can think of and do are not the physical, but the spiritual. Go back again to 1 Timothy 4, 8. Paul writes, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So then the one who is spiritually alive will care for both. Right? Taking care of the body, Paul says, is good. But seeking holiness, the spiritual it's even better because then you will address both the physical needs of the here and now and, more importantly, those of the life to come. Those things are good for the soul. We are called then to be good stewards of the body and of the spiritual things. A diligent Christian will do both. Now we know that the Spirit, living according to the Spirit, it brings life and peace. Romans 8 6, the second portion of that says, But to set the mind on things of the Spirit is life and peace. So this is setting the disposition of our minds and our hearts in the things of the Spirit of God. That brings us life and peace. Now in this passage, when Paul is talking about the Spirit, he's referring to God the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that in the next sermon. But 
just a short snippet here to say that we are to be intentional in seeking God through His Holy Spirit. How do we do that? We do that through prayer, through corporate worship, as we're doing today, through communion with the saints, through reading of His Word, through study and meditation of His Word. And the primary ingredient then, as being children of God, as being people of God, to set our minds and things of the Spirit is not only what we do in our personal time, in our personal lives, doing and caring for the things that will edify our spirit, but also corporately, as we are doing today. There is no such thing as a person who is growing in Christ who is not part of a local sound doctrine church. Paul is writing to a local church when he's writing to the book when he's writing the book of Romans and his other epistles for that matter. So what we're doing today is very important. So then the promise of God keeping his promises when we seek his kingdom, it will bring us peace. It will bring us fulfillment. But let's not confuse that. It is not necessarily equivalent with bringing us happiness. Okay, that's very different things. Happiness depends on circumstance. Fulfillment, joy, peace. As Philippians 4 says, that peace which surpasses all understanding does not depend on circumstance. A clear example of this, I have shared with most of you that a dear brother in the faith has a father who is very ill and is basically dying. They're waiting for him to die. In speaking to him and speaking with his family, they're grieving that their dad is dying, but they're joyous. They rejoice in knowing that they have peace with their dad and knowing that their dad has peace with God. Their joy, their peace, as difficult as the situation is, does not depend on the circumstance of death knocking at the door of their family, of their father specifically. That is the peace, the joy of God that surpasses all understanding. That is an example of setting our mind in the things of the Spirit. It brings life, it brings peace, it brings hope, it brings joy. Even in such circumstances. It is easier to rejoice when we have an anniversary, a birthday, a new birth. But as Christians, we are commanded to also have joy, peace, and rejoice during trials. If we do not have our minds set in the things of the Spirit, that will be impossible to do. So then, what is the result, the consequence, of setting our minds on the things of the flesh? Our third and last point. Focusing on the things of the flesh, first of all, will give us Temporary false assurance. Temporary false assurance. Jeremiah 17.5 Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Primary consequence of setting our things in the things of this world and the things of the flesh, we will turn away from the things of the Lord. Make no mistake. You're going to have one foot in and one foot out. No, that means you're out. Okay? Let us take a quick look at the parable of the rich fool that Jesus spoke. Luke 12. 
beginning of verse 16, it reads as follows. This is Jesus talking. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my gain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. My friends, this parable this, this week, it hit me. And I asked myself, what do my barns consist of? I ask you, what do your barns consist of? This especially hits dangerously home for us if we, some of us, literally have rooms filled with stuff that we value a lot. That we care about. Is having those things wrong? Maybe. Maybe. Because if those things, and you may say, well, I don't have any rooms, I don't have any barns. Oh, yes, you do. They may not be physical, but you have them. If those things, those things that we're accumulating, whether it's possessions or respect or reputation, whatever it may be, fear of, of men, if we are piling up those things, we are basically telling God, these things are more important to me, and I'm going to plan for those and those things only. And if we're playing games and thinking, okay, but I still care about the things that got a little bit, and I have a foot in and a foot out, you're actually out. Let us remind, be reminded that if we set our mind in the things of the flesh, of this world, we are actually enemies of God. Okay? Romans 8, 7. Now let's look at that. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So here, in no uncertain terms, Paul makes it clear that those who live according to the flesh... Those who continually seek and set their dispositions of their minds and hearts and the things of the flesh are not reconciled to God and are in a state of being enemies with God. The word there for hostile, it means to be in a state of deep-seated ill will. Deep-seated ill will towards God. Somebody may say, no, I don't hate God. I mean, I just don't believe in God or maybe I believe in a generic God. No, you hate God. Who says so? God says so. You cannot be neutral. If you think you're neutral, you're an enemy of God. Those who do not know Jesus, or rather are not known by him either, are not neutral. They are enemies of God. And let's make no mistake, the worst enemy you can have is God Almighty. So the very inner being of a person who hates God will not and cannot submit to God and to his law. Unless God has mercy on such a person and grants them repentance, that person will remain dead in their sins and trespasses. 
and is headed for eternal condemnation. Living in such way will never please God. Living with the priority of the things of the flesh, of the things of this world, and kinky to the side, the things of God, will not please God. Romans 8, 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay? Will not, cannot please God. So then let us ask, how is God pleased? Okay, if we cannot please God, give us some clues of how he can be pleased. Well, I've listed a few things here. How is God pleased? This is by no means an exhaustive list, but some verses that specifically mention some. According to Hebrews 11.6, we can please God by having faith in him. Okay? Not faith in a generic God, but faith in the true almighty God. According to 1 Thessalonians 2.4, we can please God by speaking the gospel. According to Galatians 1.10, we can please God by serving Christ. According to Hebrews 13.6 and Philippians 4.18, we can please God by being sacrificial in our service to others, especially to those in the faith. According to 1 John 3.22, we can please God by keeping His commandments. According to Psalms 147.11, we can please God by fearing Him, showing reverence to Him. And lastly, for all, all the children here, according to Colossians 3.20, the Word of God says that you can please God by obeying your parents. Seti, Tyler, Siki, Nathan. You can please God by obeying your parents. So more on that, on how it is that we can go from having the mindset of the things of the flesh, things of the world, into the things of the spirit. More of that next week. But let us review some final thoughts of the passage today about setting our minds on the things of the flesh and what the consequences of that is. First, let us ask, what do you have your mind set on right now, today, this morning, this past week, looking forward to this week coming up? I told you a couple of mine, right? I wanted to go and jam out and I wanted to have a really good, nasty meal. I didn't want to focus on sermon writing and prayer. Right? And that's an indication that is a hint to what we see of where our hearts want to go. That's where our hearts really want to go. It's like the alignment in a car, right? You align it. After a while, you let your steering wheel go and it, it wants, to, wants to serve. Let us remember that as we think, what am I have my inclinations, my heart, my mind, what are my inclinations to that? Well, could it be that they are set on physical things? Yes, to some extent, all of us. But is there any spiritual things in there? Is there even a fight? Is there even a hint of you knowing that you should be putting priority to the things of the Spirit? If you are a Christian, at the very least, there is a fight going on between your new nature and the remnant of the old man, the old woman that is within you. There has to be a hint of that. And hopefully there's a really big hint and a big fight going on inside of us. As Paul explained in chapter 7. What is your mind set on right now? Secondly, for the Christian, remember where you were. 
you're a Christian, we need to remember that at one point we too were enemies of God. Okay? And the scripture tells us that while we were enemies of God, God, out of his mercy, redeemed us. He reconciled us to him by the death of Christ so we can be saved from his wrath by the work of Christ. We were once enemies of God. Let that bring, let that bring us humility. Let that bring us a heart of thanksgiving. We were once on the way to hell in condemnation. We are no better than anyone else. Let that sink in so that we can praise God and worship Him for His mercy toward us. For the non-Christian, know where you stand. You are in desperate need of a Savior. You have your mind set on the things of the flesh. You are an enemy of God. God is your enemy. You are not neutral. As James 4.4 4 tells us, that to be at friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God. And you are in desperate need for a Savior. How do you do that? Trust Christ. Repent. Believe. Know that God is holy. And that you are sinful and that you are God's enemy. And that in the tribunal court of God, when you come before God Almighty, when you meet Him, the only thing that can save you from having a guilty verdict is to claim that you have the righteousness of Christ. By grace, through faith, to trust in Christ, repent of sin, turn from your sin. And that, by faith, not by anything you do, by faith you will be righteous before a holy God. And then lastly, who has pleased God? Who has pleased God? Thanks be to God that he said in Matthew 3.17, when that voice came from heaven and it said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The one who has pleased God the Father ultimately, perfectly, is Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why we can have rest, peace, assurance, being children of God, knowing that our righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. He is our substitute. We have no righteousness. No amount of good deeds that you can do is going to please God. As a matter of fact, you're going to offend God by telling Him, that you can pay with your good deeds. That'll never work. Rather, we take all that away. We humble ourselves and say, Lord, I, I need a Savior. And by grace through faith, trusting in Christ, pleasing God the Father ultimately and perfectly comes by Jesus taking our place. He has pleased God the Father perfectly. So then... May we know that setting our minds in the things of the here and now is ultimately idolatry. We are putting other things in the place of God. And we should repent from that.
I'll close with the words of Jesus in Matthew 22, 37, which I think I did add one to the notes. It says, and he said to him, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Let us reflect on these things then. And let us pray now. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to understand that setting our minds in the things of the here and now can only get us so far, but will never get us to you. Lord, give us the ability, grant us the ability to set our minds in the things of the Spirit, in the things of God, in the realization that we need a Savior, not once, not twice, but every day, and that we are dependent on the work of Christ. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ that such Savior is there and is here today. May your Holy Spirit be with us, Lord, and grant us repentance daily to turn to you in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.